Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on X, the former Twitter, Instagram, and threads, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. I told you I'd be quick about getting to the Joel Embiid-Nikola Jokic matchup in the recent Denver Nuggets-Philadelphia 76ers game in Philadelphia, Uh, a, a game that quite frankly warmed my heart more than any game in recent memory. It warmed my heart because it reminded me of the NBA that I grew up with and fell in love with. The game has changed irrevocably, and this isn't about seeing the return of the big man as a primary player. It's not that. While I appreciate the art of competing in the post, the footwork, the leverage, the variety of ways to get the ball up on the rim with touch and balance... And we certainly saw some of that in the Sixers' 126-121 win over the Nuggets. But I don't need to go back to those days. I'm not that old school. I am just fine with a drive and kick style when, or as long as it's not dumbed down to drive and get to the free throw line or drive and kick for a three-pointer. Swing, 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 three-pointer. I'm a fan of bigs operating from the high post, Princeton offense style, or putting a playmaking wing in the mid post, Michael Jordan style. And by the way, as an aside, if anybody ever tries to tell you Jordan wasn't a good passer, or he was a ball hog, or a bad teammate, save yourself the aggravation and just don't talk hoops with them. Talk whatever you talk, cuisine, talk movies, whatever. Just don't talk hoops with him because they clearly didn't watch Jordan play. They clearly don't know who Jordan was as a player. I suspect they're looking at stats, assists, which is the only way you get to suggesting that LeBron is a better passer or teammate. I know, I know, I know. There's plenty of LeBron James fans out there that are just would be outraged by that statement. That's okay. (laughs) I've lived with LeBron fans being outraged at me long enough, I can take it. LeBron was a more willing passer than Jordan because 
for the better part of LeBron's career, he didn't want the responsibility of being the team's primary scorer. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying, well, what are you talking about? He was the primary scorer for a lot of his teams. It's a little bit different. It's different than what I'm talking about. Because when it's expected, not that you're just going to be their leading scorer, but their primary scorer on a night-in and night-out basis. That's not something that LeBron is. It's a hefty responsibility. You can't take nights off. You can't decide, you know what? I think I'll just take what comes my way tonight. Shoot a good percentage or rack up some assists and call it a day. I'm going to distribute tonight. I'm going to play that way because I'm just not, my shot's not, I'm not feeling my shot tonight. I'm not hitting my free throw. So I don't think I want to take the shot with the game on the line because I'm just not feeling it. And I think maybe that's the part of professional hoops that a lot of fans don't understand because we're talking LeBron and, and, and Jordan, but it really, it applies to all players, all roles, all teams, all stars. Teams operate like corporations. Everyone has a role and everyone is expected to fill that role every game. The luxury that LeBron has had that I think very few players have ever had, and one reason because of his unique set of skills and the era that we're in. But the luxury that he's had is that teams have been built for him so that he can pick and choose what he does. And if those teams are not built for him to pick and choose, then he sows discord until they are. That's been the history. And it's why teams collapse when he's out or leave. Yes, part of it, obviously, is because he's really damn good. But another equally big part is that everything is structured to cater to him. Those that are make the comparison with the Bulls and when Jordan retired and Scottie Pippen became the guy. Obviously, they weren't playing for championships, but they were still pretty good. They made the playoffs. I think they made the second round. It's because the system wasn't built uniquely for Jordan. Jordan adapted to the system. And some of this that I'm talking about will be in the book that I'm working on. So stay tuned. But in any case, the building a team specifically for Jordan, that didn't happen. He gave himself over to the triangle, which is not built to feature a particular player. Now, Phil Jackson did plenty of featuring Jordan anyway, trust me. If you ever saw him form a triangle with his fingers, he would he would be on the bench and he would put his hands down between his knees and he would, uh, he would have an upside-down triangle. He would form an upside-down triangle with his fingers, with his thumbs and his index fingers, and then he would spread the index fingers. That would mean open the triangle. It was a, a signal to spread everyone out, let Jordan get the ball at the top, and go. And it was a somewhat of a precursor to what the way the game's played now, but this was a last resort. They would run the triangle. If it didn't get anything, then with the clock running down, they would go to open. Or in certain need situations. They had they liked the matchups. 
But Jordan didn't come down the floor with the ball in his hands and immediately start looking for his or working to get a switch and a favorable cover so that he could attack. He ran the triangle. And if it didn't get something for someone in the first 14 seconds, then Phil gave the signal and Mike went to work. Michael led the league in usage rate quite a few years during his career because the Bulls were that dependent on him and he was scoring. So who's going to have the ball in his hands the most of the time? But the scorer. It's also the playmaker, which people don't give enough credit for. Scottie Pippen certainly uh, presented that role as well. But the guards per se, the point guards per se, were really spot-up shooters in this system. And it was an equal opportunity offense, or at least it was supposed to be. It was for, you know, for the first, let's say, 14 seconds of the shot clock. It was an equal opportunity offense. And then after that, it was Mike's. But his usage rate was nowhere near what we've seen of stars in the last 20 years. So if you combine the heightened usage rate of today, the increased pace of play, which means more possessions uh, per 48 minutes, and the three-point shooting explosion, that's why you have so many stars, and I'm using air quotes here, that appear to be more productive or prolific than players in previous eras. Mike's in particular. Mike specifically. There are more numbers to be had today, and stars are given more opportunity to collect them. In general, I've come to this conclusion overall, just so you know where I'm coming from, just so that if we ever banter on uh, social media or wherever, that you will understand if I'm engaging or not. Because I've come to this conclusion. If your argument for why someone is great starts with statistics, you have no argument. At least not one that I'm interested in hearing. The argument starts with what a player has done. Championships and games won, awards received. If anyone wants to back those up with numbers, cool. I have no problem with that. There's a place for analytics and statistics in a measurement of players to be sure. I use them myself. But it can't start there, and it certainly can't start and end there. Because there are way too many variables, and there are way too many ways to get really good numbers or craft a really good-looking box score that have nothing to do with winning. And that seems to be lost on a lot of fans these days. I almost said younger fans, but I don't want to presume it's generational. Maybe it's just fans who never competed or had the chance to be their team's leading scorer in any way, at any level, at any time, or never played with a leading scorer or stat hound whose pursuit of numbers did nothing to help the team win. Yet, they got their numbers. There's n and there's nothing, for my from my experience, there's nothing more demoralizing than having a teammate celebrated and lauded for putting up numbers when you know they did so at the expense of giving the team its best chance to win. It makes you feel like the world, the sports world, is an unjust place. And the one thing that we count on when it comes to sports is that it's going to be fair. 
that you're going to compete and everybody's going to start out equal and then we see where the chips fall. And if there's any time that people get upset with sports, it's because they get the feeling like it's not that. But that's what it's supposed to be. That's why we watch every night, every weekend, whatever it might be. Because we don't know in advance who's going to win based on who's playing. We might think we do, but there's always that opportunity of an upset, of a change. Which brings me back to why I loved watching Embiid and Jokic go at it. Because they clearly wanted to prove something to each other, large and small. I couldn't help but feel as if Embiid tried to show he could be a passer out of double teams on the level that Jokic is. And that Jokic wanted to show he could bump and grind and score against size in the paint the way Embiid does. Could be just as forceful looking for his. And maybe it was my imagination, but I felt as if both of them do more in those or did more in those particular categories than usual in this game. And certainly they've both been taking an approach all season long of diversifying how they play. Jokic being more forceful finding his shot and punishing defenses with his size. Hence the increase in the number of unassisted buckets that he's had this season. And Embiid conversely finding his teammates Hence, the career-high six assists per game average. Embiid said he's playing the way he is because his teammates and coaching staff trust him. He's also trusting them to make shots in a way he hasn't before. And as for Jokic, he learned he's a champion. He learned that he can go get it. And so now, he is imposing his will in a way we've, say, we've seen before. We've seen guys grow into this, realize that they can dominate. I feel like we saw LeBron do that. LeBron certainly wasn't a guy who went and tried to impose his will scoring-wise for the better, I will almost say the better part of his career. But for the last seven, eight years, most of the time he looks around and goes, I'm the best player on the floor. I'm Nobody's big enough or fast enough to stop me. I should go get it. So some guys start that way. Some guys grow into it. Now, this may come as a shock to my younger audience, but this kind of matchup, Jokic versus Embiid, used to be a regular occurrence. The NBA's advertising of games, Larry Bird versus Magic, or Jordan, Jordan versus Clyde Drexler, or Tim Duncan versus Kevin Garnett, wasn't just taking the two most identifiable faces and putting them next to each, on pro, next to each other on promos. That was... The primary matchup. Those players looked forward to facing each other, to proving they could beat the other. Now, a lot of times they didn't play the same positions, so there wasn't quite the same opportunity to match up, but that was the beauty of Jokic and Embiid once again. We had two centers, two playmaking centers, who were willing to match up man-on-man throughout the course of the game. That's just rare today. It's, even if the players don't play the same position, the idea that two guys are trying to run the show and beat the other star on the other team. We still get matchups. We still get stars trying to win. But we don't get the feeling like this guy leading this team is trying to prove he can do a better job of doing that than this guy over here. Happens maybe occasionally. But it used to be a 
nightly regular appearance. Now, now more often than not, star players have no problem sitting out a game and load managing against a rival or someone that they're vying for the rights to be called the best or better than. And I think there are three culprits for this development. Coaches who fear the opponent getting a read on how they play at full strength and wanting to keep a wild card in the hole. Medical staffs who completely whiff on the psychology of the game and the entertainment value of the league by subscribing rest for star players regardless of the significance of the game. And I'm, I'm not bagging on medical staffs and what they know and how they, how they grade or measure whether players need rest or not. I have, my, I have lots of questions, but I'm not suggesting that they're uh, incompetent. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that they're looking through a very narrow prism that doesn't take into account everything that it means to be part of a team and trying to win in a professional setting. That's what I mean. They're very much just, this is what I know about the health of a player, and it's go or no go. And there's just way too much gray area for that to be black and white and to be accurate. I think there's also uh, fans to be blamed because they don't demand such showdowns. They'll, de they'll actually, there's some fans who will defend their favorite player uh, for sitting out in such potential situations. And the coaches, by the way, are exposing their lack of confidence in their ability to adjust to what they learn about playing the opponent at full strength. Play them at full strength if they have an answer, if they see something that you're worried might they might have an answer for as a result of having that time to prepare, come up with a plan B. Have confidence that you can be the better player no matter what the other team does. I can't remember. I saw a quote recently. I don't know if it was John Wooden, somebody. It was a coach suggesting that you prepare not for the opponent. You prepare to be your best self ultimately. Now, what made the Jokic-Embiid matchup particularly delicious is not only how much they guarded each other, but how they went at each other. How often do we see star players guarded by another star player and they immediately call for a pick so they can get a more favorable matchup before looking to score? How often do we see a premier matchup of two stars and the coach sends a double team or the star calls for one so the star with the ball is induced to giving up the ball. So we don't see that mano a mano match. Jokic and Embiid were matched up at various times throughout the game, beginning in the first quarter. Even I was surprised by that. That's, that's so out of the norm for what we're used to seeing. The only annoying part <laughs> was hearing TNT broadcaster and former coach Stan Van Gundy go on and on excusing the high scoring by pointing out that the two teams were not playing their usual defensive schemes because of the two bigs and how they were playing. It's a fair point, but it also would have been good to bring up Steve Kerr's recent complaint that defenses have been legislated out of the league and hear Van Gundy's view of that, which if he shared it, I did not hear it. And admittedly, I usually watch games on mute. Uh, there was times where I forget why I had the sound up, but I heard, I heard enough of Van Gundy talking about 
the why the there was so much scoring ad nauseum and I finally muted him. So there are simply too many comments that are either clearly pandering to the league, to the players, or flat out wrong. That having the sound on ends up with me shouting at my TV or at the very least muttering to myself, which my dogs and my family find amusing, but I, I just I, there's no need for me to ruin the experience. <laughs> as entertaining as it might be for them, not entertaining for me. Besides, it can be distracting or have me wrapped up thinking about how wrong something someone just said is and how there are going to be fans and viewers who think what was said was true maybe because of who said it, and how when I give the reel on one of my platforms, I'm going to get knuckleheads telling me I'm wrong because they've been misled by a broadcast about how the game works, believing that somehow the broadcast partners have more insight or are not swayed by, well, they're not, they're not part of the promotion of the game, which they are, having worked for a broadcast partner. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. with the NBA, I can assure you, actually two broadcast partners, I can assure you, you're not always getting the real. Most of the time, I'd say, you're probably not getting the real. It's, they're part, they're part of the league in that role. Anyway, the defensive issue clearly got under Van Gundy's skin as a former coach. He just kept hammering the point, and it got to where I was thinking, we get it. Please, just talk about something else, anything else. And the reality is that when they got to the fourth quarter, the defense improved as much as it can in this era. And I want to say the, the, the Sixers won because Philly's defense was just better, or at least Denver missed more shots. I'd have to go back and watch the tape again to, to give you a, a real assessment of that. But I felt like... Philly ratcheted it up. They were certainly making shots. I felt like both teams played better defense. Philly just did a better job of making contested shots. That's my my snap take without having gone back and watched it a second time. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on a negative here. There's just too much to like about the battle between Jokic and Embiid and a trip to an earlier galaxy far, far away. And no, I'm not in the habit of using Star Wars references. I just I couldn't resist. Sorry. The matchup clearly meant something to both of them, and both had immense respect for the other. Uh, okay, I didn't want to get negative. Uh, there is one other element that didn't sit quite right with me. I didn't need Embiid saying afterward that he whispered into Jokic's ear that he told them he's and told him he's the best player in the game because he's a champion and Finals MVP. I'm sure he didn't add that. You're you're the best player in the game because you're a champion and Finals MVP. I don't think he said that last part to, to Jokic. I think that was his explanation on air as to why that he said it. But 
it was jarring that he said he's he shared that. It's the middle of the season. Embiid is playing Jokic again in two weeks. Why was he hyping him up? If you want to acknowledge after the season or in an anthology after you retire, cool. But can you imagine Larry Bird ever saying that to Magic or anyone else while they were playing? Kevin Garnett saying that to Tim Duncan? I mean, go, go through the list. LeBron's not saying that about anybody. Uh, Kobe wouldn't say it about anybody. I don't get Here you are at the top. You can think it. He can think it all he wants. He can use it as motivation. Yeah, you know what? I'm league MVP, but I don't have what he has. So I have to, I have to see him as the best player in the game. But I'm not telling him that. And I think I know what Embiid was going for. He wanted it known that he measures being the best in the league with being a champion and finals MVP, not being the regular season MVP. It was, I believe, an attempt at being modest and sharing that, or at least giving the impression that his mindset is in the right place. He was saying he still has a mountain to climb. He was saying that a championship is more valuable than a regular season MVP, which he's he's right. <laughs> it is. And does he still have a mountain to climb? Yes, he does. I read one article that suggested what Embiid said was modest and that not everyone would agree with it, that they would say Embiid is better than Jokic. And for anybody who would think that, you're they're adult. Winning regular season MVP does not equate to being the best player in the league. Leading your team to a championship equates to that, period. Now, one last item I want to hit before I go, and that's all the pieces of information leaking out that explain why there are no U.S.-born and developed players vying for MVP these days. It's why... We're talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, and Joel Embiid, and Luka Doncic, and what do they all have in common? Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I mean, go down the list. The players that we think the most about because of their all-around games are all foreign-born, for the most part, foreign-developed players. The first item that uh, or piece of information is Anthony Edwards' comments on TNT when asked why he's learned to channel his talent into winning games. It's basically was acknowledging that Ant has been a a really good player for a long time, but he was a really good player on losing teams. And now he's part of a winning team. And there are reasons for that above and beyond Anthony Edwards' evolution. And Kenny Smith probably or should know that. But in any case... Edwards credited his experience with Team USA in the FIBA World Cup over the summer because, he said, it taught him the importance of playing within a team concept, how not just to get his, but know when to get his, and how to help make those around him better. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. And I thought it was an astonishing admission. Anthony Edwards is 22 years old. I thought it was astonishing and I thought it was also very revealing. This is his fourth year in the NBA. He's about to be an all-star for the second time. He has reactionaries like 
ESPN's Kendrick Perkins, who saw Ant throw the ball off the backboard and dunk it against the Memphis, Memphis Grizzlies team without Steven Adams or Jaron Jackson Jr. on the floor and proclaimed him the future face of the league. Now, I like Anthony Edwards' attitude. I love his athleticism. And he's clearly working on his game. He gets better every year. But without veteran point guard Mike Conley steering the ship, if you want to know why they're winning the way they are, they got Mike Conley at the trade deadline last year. And it just wasn't enough time for everything to come together. I think they had a number of injuries. But what you're seeing is the impact of having a true floor general with all of that talent. Anthony Edwards, without Mike Conley steering the ship, is not much different than Devin Booker without Chris Paul. Fabulous talents, both of them, who are still very much learning the game. As Anthony Edwards' comment about what Team USA did for him attests, that's what makes calling him the future face of the league, I don't want to say ridiculous, so we'll just say reactionary. Now, consider Ant's comment with another piece of information from Orlando Magic forward Franz Wagner. Wagner Wagner was on J.J. Reddick's podcast. Wagner is also 22 years old. He was born in Berlin, Germany, grew up there, played in the German national team program, still plays for the German national team, uh, played for the U18 team for a pro club, Alba Berlin, for a couple years, and then played a year with their men's team before he came over and enrolled and played at the University of Michigan for two years. Now, Franz told JJ that he never played pick and roll until he was maybe 15 years old. The Alba teams didn't run plays or sets. They didn't try to funnel everything to their best player. They just taught concepts. Screening, rolling, back cutting, split screens, dribble handoffs, slip screens, you name it. All the fundamentals of offense. And then expected the players to read the defense and act accordingly. Not be told that they're supposed to go in one direction, read the defense, and then decide what you're going to do among all those concepts that you've been taught. He was taught, Franz was, the true essence of the game. And J.J. had to laugh. He really laughed. He said, pick and roll is all we do. He shared that an NBA coach, one of his NBA coaches, didn't name him, once had a team scrimmage and said they weren't allowed to dribble. Try to score. No one's allowed to dribble. And J.J. said no one knew what to do. J.J. did because he liked playing off the ball. But pretty much, and I don't know where it went. I don't know whether they still tried it. I don't know whether they got it, whether they just quit on it. But it wasn't automatic. And I guess I, I, look, I know how the NBA game is played. I still find that a little shocking. Uh, When I coached in a local AAU program, uh, I had a group of boys I brought up until they went to uh, high school. And one of the drills I used was playing three-on-three or four-on-four, either no dribble or one dribble. And then you have to give it up. And, uh, and it was essentially for this thing because best players inherently get the ball, they pound the rock, and everybody tries to play off of them. 
And then when we played full court, two dribbles were allowed. And initially, the kids, like, they would be stumped. But they got the hang of it. And it didn't always translate to the games, but they, they understood how that worked. Because they realized when you're playing that way, when you can't dribble, nobody can be standing. Everybody has to be doing something to advance the ball and get a shot. You have to look for your teammate. That something else that you're doing has to be for a teammate. And that the best teammate to get the ball to is the teammate that is open. Now, France, not necessarily shoot, but open. And France said one of their drills was based on passing. You got a point for completing 10 passes. There was no, no shooting, no scoring in the game. It was just all about, could you complete, can you complete 10 passes in a row? I used the same drill in, in a confined space. Usually inside the, took all of our players, put them inside the three-point arc, and same kind of thing. Uh, had to, I think we had five or seven passes for a point. First team to five. And I say none of that. Let's be clear. I say none of that to suggest I'm a great or even good coach. None of that. I knew that I didn't have particularly athletic or tall players. And the only way we were going to compete was if we could make the ball do the work and played pure team basketball. I also, my, my ultimate goal as a coach was to teach my players the game so that they could play it for the rest of their lives. That they could go anywhere into any pickup game, play with anyone, and be able to play and contribute. And if you're just all about pounding the rock, then chances are you go to a game and you're playing with five guys who are used to pounding the rock or just two guys that are used to pounding the rock and they're a little bit better than you are, probably not going to do a whole lot in that game. Probably not going to be very enjoyable. On the other hand, when you can do all those other things, there's a tendency for the guy who dominates the ball to find you or look for you because he eventually gets double teamed. So imagine, imagine that with learning all that, learning the essence of the game. Imagine a player with athleticism or size knowing how to do all that. And you actually don't have to imagine because we get to see it here and there in the NBA. Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, Victor Wembanyama, Alperin Sengun. Are they flashy? Are they flashy the way Edwards is? For the most part, no. Do they crush dunks the way he does? Do they have highlight reels? For the most part, no. Victor now and then, but again, for the most part, no. But can you run your offense through them? Can you win games with them dominating the ball or having the ball in their hands as much or more than anybody else on your team? Absolutely you can. You can run now you can run your offense through Ant if you give him the ball and get out of the way. I don't know how much you're going to win, but you're going you can run it through him. Uh, when it comes to decision making, that's where things get a little wobbly. The Timberwolves have the best record in the Western Conference as I record this. Edwards is fifth in the league in usage rate, highest on the Timberwolves. He's tied with Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Do you know where he ranks in win share per 48 minutes? Fifth in league usage, 69th 
in win share. Both Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley are have far better win share percentages, rated way higher. And if you're asking me what win share is, can't exactly tell you other than it's the amount of <laughs> the amount of winning that a team does with those particular players on the floor. How and I'm sure it has to do with scoring differential. What's the percentage that a team outscores the opponent when those guys are on the floor? And you know how good Anthony can be as a defender. So it's not like his defense is letting him down. It's because he doesn't execute well. Highlight reels, yes. And by the way, Franz Wagner, 43rd in usage rate. Also 22 years old. 43rd in usage rate, 70th in win share per 48 minutes. That's right. He's 38 spots below Edwards in how much he has the ball in his hands, and he's right behind him in terms of his contributions to winning. Edwards 69th, Franz Wagner 70th. Now, I don't want to make too much of win shares or analytics. I mention them because they support what I've seen with my eyes. I saw it in Asia during the FIBA World Cup with Anthony Edwards. I see it whenever Mike Conley misses a game for the Timberwolves. Edwards is an amazing talent who is learning the game, is trying to learn the game. I love that. God help all basketball fans and the NBA, though, if that makes him, based on that, the future face of the league because it means knowing how to play the game is not essential because there's no guarantee that Anthony is going to reach that point where he understands the game well enough to win championships or put his team in in the finals. Highlight dunks and buckets, a winning smile, a winning team. What Perk is saying is that that's all that matters. Except, that's not all that mattered between Embiid and Jokic. The game mattered. The outcome mattered. How they're compared mattered. Give me that any day over whatever the alternative is. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I do not know what the next podcast is going to be based on. Need to see what's going on around the league. Uh, I'm having a conversation with a one-on-one with Stephen Curry beginning of next week, or at least that's on the books. So something may come of that, looking at what has been a very troubled year for the Golden State Warriors and what it means for their future. Also, I got the trade deadline coming up, so... Maybe we'll look at that, at some of the things that have happened. Have not discussed the Pascal Siakam trade with Indiana. That could be something we hit. Feel like I need a, another trade that's at least a little bit bigger and more impactful before we devote an episode to trades. But maybe not, because I know the trades are very intriguing to a lot of basketball fans. So we shall see. In the meantime... As always, thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.